One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico, from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. The History of North America podcast series is an incredible historical adventure that chronicles the thrilling, action-packed tale of a continent. I invite you to come along for the ride. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 234. Changing Priorities In the summer of 1147, while the armies of the Second Crusade crossed the Balkans, a Norman fleet set sail for Byzantium. Its first target was the island of Corfu. Corfu lies off the west coast of Greece, not far from the heel of Italy. The Normans landed and encouraged the Byzantine garrison to abandon their position, promising the locals a lighter tax burden in return. With this base secured, the armada sailed on. They landed near the city of Thebes and captured it with almost no resistance. The Normans systematically stripped it of its wealth and its most valuable people. Women were selected for either their beauty or their weaving skills. The region was renowned for its silk workers, and the Normans decided to enslave as many as they could and move them to workshops in their own lands. After attacking Athens and burning other towns, the enemy fleet moved on to Corinth, again overwhelming the small garrison and looting the town. They went so far as to steal the local saints' relics. With their ships loaded to the brim, the Normans sailed home. They held on to Corfu, though, as a valuable naval base for future operations. As you can imagine, Manuel Komnenos was furious. He was unable to act since his entire military establishment were at Constantinople. They had to be, since the gigantic armies of the Second Crusade were too much of a threat to be left to their own devices. The emperor was also profoundly worried. The timing of the attack demonstrated graphically the danger that the Latins posed to the Roman Empire. You are well aware of the defensive strengths of the city of Constantinople. 
surrounded on three sides by water and boasting triple land walls. But the added layer of defence, historically, was the position of the city on the European side of the Bosphorus. If Constantine had built on the Asian side, then the Roman Empire would have ended centuries earlier. The Sassanids, the Arabs, the Turks, the major military threats to Byzantium had, up to this point, all been Eastern powers. The West had never been capable of attacking New Rome, nor did it have much reason to. And although the First Crusade had displayed Latin power, the princes of Europe depended on Byzantium for their onward journeys, which had guaranteed their mostly good behaviour. The Second Crusade changed this equation considerably. Now it seemed massive Western armies would regularly be coming to Constantinople without asking permission first. That was a danger, yes, but still just about manageable. It was the presence of the Norman fleet in imperial waters that really set alarm bells ringing. It wasn't just the fact that they could raid with impunity, it was the implied threat to Constantinople itself. If the Crusaders didn't get what they wanted, what was to stop them calling on the Normans to help them besiege the Roman capital? Patreon subscribers heard in our last episode that this very course of action was suggested by a party within the French camp. If you're on a sacred mission, after all, anyone who opposes you is fair game for attack. Byzantine officials, who repeatedly tried to manipulate the French, came close to being perceived as the enemy. Given a scenario like this was exactly how Constantinople was sacked in 1204, Manuel was right to be worried. The emperor responded to this situation by changing imperial priorities. As you know, his father and grandfather had retake Antioch at the top of the palace whiteboard for the past half century. Manuel now got out the eraser and replaced the word Antioch with Apulia. Ideally, the Romans would like to have retaken all of southern Italy and Sicily, snuffing out the Norman menace for good. But there were too many obstacles to overcome to contemplate anything on that scale. Capturing the ports of Apulia, though, was a more reasonable goal. The residents of the towns of the southeast coast of Italy were still Greek speakers and were not unsympathetic to the return of imperial rule. Crucially, these were also the places that Conrad, the German emperor, was willing to gift Manuel as part of their alliance. If the Byzantines could regain a foothold in Italy, it would be a major step towards shutting the Normans down. Imperial agents could spy on the enemy, pay locals to sabotage their plans, and launch attacks on Norman shipping. It would make enemy forays into the Aegean much less likely, since the Latins would be leaving themselves wide open to counterattack. This change in priorities had serious consequences, though. Antioch had never been so vulnerable. The failure of the Second Crusade had left it isolated and friendless. A concerted effort now could have restored the city to Roman rule. Manuel's decision, as understandable as it was, let Antioch slip further from Byzantium's grasp.
Unfortunately for Manuel, the Normans of Italy were much stronger than they had been the last time the Romans had tried to crush them. The key to their success was the conquest of Sicily. Before that, the Normans were just one group amongst many in southern Italy squabbling for power. But once Sicily was united under one leader, it gave that man the ability to cow Apulia and Calabria. Sicily had been subdued in 1091 and had been slowly pacified and exploited over the past 50 years. The island's large Muslim population had been brought into the fold and many of them now served in the army. While the resources of its fertile land allowed for a proper fleet to be built, one that could attack Byzantium as well as dominating the coasts of the area. Apulia and Calabria were still riven with factions. Almost every city there strived to maintain the independence they'd long enjoyed. But the Normans of Sicily now had the men and the money to cajole or terrorise them into line. Bohemond's cousin, Roger II, was the man who began to make this dream a reality. He spent the early decades of the 12th century centralising power and crushing dissent. By 1129, he technically held all of southern Italy and Sicily, and thanks to a quirk of papal politics, he was able to make this official the following year. A schism in Rome meant there was a pontiff desperate for secular support who offered to turn Duke Roger into a king. On Christmas Day, 1130, in Palermo Cathedral, Pope Anacletus II placed a crown on Roger's head. For the first time since the age of Justinian, the south of Italy was under the control of one man. In order to defeat the Normans, Manuel knew he would need Venetian aid. The emperor had not yet commented on the privileges which the Italian merchants enjoyed. In theory, there was no need for the Vasilevs to alter the arrangements in any way, but with a grant such as this, it was expected that each new Roman emperor would confirm the privileges, issuing a fresh treaty that would last for the rest of his reign. Ecomeninos now took this step, agreeing to expand the Venetian quarter in Constantinople yet further, while securing the full services of their fleet for the coming year. When spring 1148 arrived, Manuel gathered his army and marched for the coast opposite Corfu. His fleet set off too, and the Venetians would join them in the Adriatic. But after marching for a couple of hundred miles, word reached Manuel that some Cuman tribes had crossed the Danube. He had to divert his army to chase them away, meaning he didn't arrive at his destination until the autumn. The emperor decided to spend the winter nearby while leaving his navy to blockade Corfu. Roman and Venetian troops did actually land on the island, but they couldn't dislodge the Sicilian garrison. Corfu's citadel was high up in an almost impregnable position. Manuel returned to the scene in 1149, and although it took several months of hard work, the enemy garrison eventually surrendered. Despite this success, there were two major red flags during the campaign. The Normans tried to break the blockade by sending a fleet into the Aegean again. Finding no Roman ships opposing them, the Italians kept going all the way to the Bosphorus itself. They landed on the Asian side of Constantinople and looted a few buildings before sailing home. 
a worrying sign of imperial weakness. Meanwhile, back at Corfu, a nasty brawl broke out between Venetian and Byzantine soldiers. The ugly scenes saw Roman troops drive their allies back to their boats with swords in hand. In response, the Venetians seized Manuel's royal barge when he was absent. Allegedly, they dressed up a dark-skinned slave in the emperor's clothes and mock acclaimed him. A dig at Manuel's swarthy appearance. Of course, sailors will be sailors and all that, but it was a deeply disrespectful performance from the empire's closest allies. Komnenos ignored the insult and got on with taking back Corfu. Once that mission was accomplished, he wanted to sail at least some of his army across to Italy, but events intervened. As the Romans approached Corfu, Norman diplomats were hard at work. They were away in Serbia and Hungary, trying to stir up trouble, and they'd succeeded. The Serbs of Raska had taken the bait and attacked the Serbs of Dukja, who were loyal to the empire. Manuel left Corfu and marched north to deal with them, and his attack was ruthless. The Byzantines stormed several major fortresses and deported those they captured. The ruler of Raska, the Zupan Uros, disappeared into the hills, forcing Manuel to campaign again in the Balkans the following year. This is where the analogy of the crowded chessboard rears its ugly head again. Every move Manuel made disturbed other pieces on the board, who then made moves in response. The Germans and the Venetians were in favour of attacks on the Normans, but the Serbs and Hungarians were not. It was a series of competing interests vaguely reminiscent of the alliance system before the First World War. The Germans and Hungarians often skirmished along their borders, while Venice and Hungary clashed over control of the Dalmatian coast. That coast was close to the heartlands of Serbia, whose leaders resented Venetian interference. The Serbs and Hungarians were close allies, their leading families having intermarried. If the Normans were crushed, it would only strengthen the Germans and Venetians, and so the Serbs and Hungarians responded. Relations between Byzantium and Hungary, by contrast, were usually good, since the Danube was such an obvious frontier that both sides could respect. But Constantinople did have this infuriating habit of offering refuge to dissident members of the Hungarian royal family. This proved enough of a pretext for the Hungarians to begin contemplating moving against their neighbours. So, as Manuel marched again for Serbia in 1150, he discovered that Hungarian troops had crossed the Danube to assist their allies. Byzantine scouts encountered the Hungarian cavalry as they were making their way to Raska and chased after them. According to our historian John Kinemus, Manuel himself joined the chase and ended up fighting one-on-one -on -one with their commander. Apparently, he also slayed 15 men with a single charge of his lance. It's difficult to know what to make of these descriptions of individual heroics. Kinemus was still a child at this time, so this is all second- or third-hand stuff at best. And I don't think he realises that presenting the Emperor as being forced into hand-to-hand -hand combat actually makes Manuel sound foolishly rash 
rather than admirably brave. The reality was that the small Hungarian force and the outgunned Serbians were no match for the full Byzantine army. After a short campaign, the Zupan Uros came out of the forests and prostrated himself at Manuel's feet. The Serbs were back in the fold and Komnenos could turn to the problem of Hungary. Manuel's mother was a Hungarian and the empire and its Christian neighbour had enjoyed 20 years of peace, so the emperor was keen to end this quickly. The Romans crossed into the territory between the Sava and Danube rivers and ravaged it. They led thousands of people into captivity, safe in the knowledge that the Hungarian king, Geza II, was nowhere near the frontier. By the time the king appeared, the Byzantines were in too strong a position to attack, and so he had to sue for peace. Manuel returned home and celebrated a triumph, parading thousands of prisoners in his train. King Geza was not finished, though. Humiliated by the previous year's events, he gathered his full army and marched to the Danube the following spring. Manuel, who was keen to focus on Italy, was forced to march back north to confront him. Geza didn't really want war, though, just a peace that left him with a little more dignity. So Manuel returned thousands of prisoners to him, and the two leaders renewed the treaty, which John Komnenos had signed two decades earlier. With the Balkans again at peace, Manuel could finally press on with an invasion of Italy. He'd been hoping during these years that his ally, Conrad, the German emperor, would have done some of the fighting for him. The Holy Roman Emperors claimed all of Italy as part of their realm, and so a Norman king in the south was a direct challenge to their authority. But Conrad had been busy, since the Second Crusade, with domestic challenges. Diplomatic activity throughout 1151, though, seemed to have finally got both empires and the papacy on the same page for an attack on the Norman south. And then Conrad went and dropped dead in March 1152. It was a major blow to Manuel's plans. Though the new emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, remained agreeable, he had other business to attend to before he could think about Italy. The Romans would have to make the opening moves against the Normans on their own, and I want to give that my full attention in our next episode. Predictably, though, Manuel's focus on Western affairs had led to a neglect of his Eastern Front and events there had moved swiftly against Byzantine interests. As you know, the Second Crusade was prompted by the fall of Edessa to Muslim forces. Those forces were now under the command of the Emir Nur al-Din. In 1149, while Manuel was in Corfu, Nur al-Din attacked the territory of Antioch. Prince Raymond marched out to meet him and was killed in battle. The obvious man to replace Raymond was his old friend Jocelyn of Edessa, but the following year Jocelyn also fell into the hands of Nur al-Din. He would remain the emir's prisoner for the rest of his days. This was a really desperate time in Christian-held Syria. The king of Jerusalem had to march up there to stop the entire region falling to the enemy. The Latins were fortunate that actually occupying Antioch was not a high priority for Nur al-Din. 
This situation presented an ideal opportunity for Byzantium to step in and annex the territory it had coveted for so long. But by now, Manoel was bogged down in the west. The fate of Crusader Syria was left in the hands of Raymond and Jocelyn's widows. Jocelyn's wife was technically in charge of what remained of the county of Edessa. She eventually agreed to sell the six major castles left in Latin hands to the Romans. Through his agents in Cilicia, Manuel agreed to pay substantial sums to gain possession of this territory. This is the first occasion where I'm left confused by Manuel's decision-making, and unfortunately, I don't think it will be the last. Now, purchasing Edessan territory does fit with Byzantium's wider goal of gaining recognition from the Crusaders. What the Romans really wanted was for the Latins to acknowledge that the land they were occupying actually belonged to the emperor. Simply buying castles off them, in that sense, was a good move. But who exactly was going to defend these new acquisitions? The only Roman troops in the area were the garrisons of the Cilician cities. So Manuel ordered his commanders there to spread themselves out over the new territory. Can you imagine what happened next? Basically, the Romans lost all of it. Within five years, the Muslims had picked off the isolated castles of Edessa, and the Armenians who dominated the Taurus Mountains swept down onto the plain of Cilicia and took control of the cities there. Fantastic. With Manuel busy on the Danube, he could only afford to send a small force to try and restore the situation. This army was led by the emperor's cousin, Andronicus, who was defeated by the Armenians outside Mopsuestia and was forced to flee. We'll be hearing a lot more about Andronicus. Meanwhile, in Antioch, Raymond's widow Constance was looking for a new husband to rule the city with her. It was another opportunity for Byzantium to gain some kind of hold over the city, but Manuel's choice of suitor failed to impress her, and she married another French knight, Renaud of Châtillon, instead. Manuel had no choice but to press on with his plans for Italy. He felt he had to tackle the Normans before he could return to Syria, and I can't argue with that logic but inevitably it left the East open for other actors to sweep Byzantium from the stage. Next time, we'll travel to Italy to see Byzantine policy in action. Manuel was determined to unite all the major players of the peninsula against the Normans, and he was willing to spend serious money to do so. While you're waiting for that episode, why not check out the History of North America podcast? The show is already 60 episodes in and is taking a deep dive into the stories which emerged as European settlers encountered the New World, as well as those from native civilizations. Mark regularly gets other voices on his show to give the stories a different flavour. Why don't you give them a listen wherever you get your podcasts? Just search History of North America or visit anchor.fm forward slash mark dash Vinette.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.